Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show today, we'll have a look at how banking and financial regulations have progressed over the last decade and where they need to go to maintain the banking system's integrity. BIV is once again looking to recognize BC's outstanding entrepreneurs, executives, managers, and professionals in public private, and nonprofit sectors who are ahead of their time. Nominations for the 2018 40 Under 40 Awards close July 30th, so go ahead and visit BIV.com slash events for all the details. We're going to start our show today with a look at some major news on the trade front. U.S. tariffs on $34 billion U.S. billion worth of Chinese goods took effect at midnight, and not long after, we learned Beijing had responded with tariffs in Kind. Now, Tyler, I don't think this caught anyone by surprise. We knew it was coming. But the question now is... Yeah, I think for a long time, China was holding out hope that the US would actually just back down from this. Mm Because I think there's enough pressure, at least China was trying to exert pressure saying, well, we'll do these tit for tat tariffs. Where does that leave you guys as well? So it is a bit of a concern for all parties involved. I wonder if there was room, though, for the U.S. to really back down. They've made such a big deal out of the deficit they have with China. They've definitely said some very strong words aimed at Beijing, and they want to correct this. So backing down from tariffs, I mean, everything points to now tough talk of even escalating tariffs. Whether it'll go that route, I don't know. Yeah, and I think it comes down to the fact that the United States really just wanted to force China to the negotiation table, and China's pushing back hard against that. And what's fascinating to me is what exactly the U.S. is targeting here. Uh, Things like pumps and turbines, Mm -hmm. electrical equipment, manufacturing equipment, microscopes, it's not really consumer products. What I think they were are, are trying to do, though, is targeting stuff that's going to hurt the Chinese economy, but not necessarily the American consumer. Which is interesting. And uh, I mean, it's it's difficult because you hurt the economy. And at the end of the day, doesn't that then potentially have an impact well, on the consumer? Again, because like you think about like, yeah, if businesses are suffering, it's going to have that trickle down effect and, and it's not going to be great for the overall economy yeah. whatsoever. But here's China's deal. They're saying, okay, well, we're going to target things like soybeans, um, you know, pork, uh, fruit, nuts, aircrafts, cars, jet engines, computer chips. It's targeting, say, the manufacturing and agricultural sectors within mm-hmm. the U.S. economy, which I think they perceive as having very strong lobbying groups within Washington, D.C., also strong representation within U.S. Congress as well to push back against the White House. So I think it's smart on China's part. Because essentially right now the White House is asking, say, pork farmers to be patriotic and hang on through this tough time. So I I don't see this ending well for either of the countries involved. No. And I think the latest figures when they look at, you know, the overall GDP impact that this latest round of tariffs might have, it's not huge. And China has, you know, they've put out rhetoric, at least saying that, you know, they can weather this storm. But if things start to escalate, I think that's a different matter. And we heard from President Trump on Thursday floating the idea of half a trillion dollars worth of tariffs. If it gets to that point, that's a pretty extreme point in this tariff battle. But I can't imagine that not having an impact. I think the numbers on that would be much higher. Yeah, look, I I think the $34 billion US, that would still have an impact on both economies but not nearly to the same degree that $500 billion would. And I think it's a very concerning 
thing that's going on right now. Especially for trade partners of both countries. Well, like and that ju- okay, so let's think about the Canadian um, factor here. You know, would that would an escalating trade war with between China and the U.S. affect Canada? Yes, because of just like say uh, overall global investments that would ratchet down. Also, think of the fact that you know NAFTA. It's not looking great with negotiations right now. That's a lot of uncertainty for people wanting to invest in Canada. Uh, would Canada then lean more towards trade with China? We, we did have Trudeau try to make efforts to get some sort of trade agreement announced when mm-hmm. he was visiting uh, Asia in the fall. That did not come to pass. So I, I just wonder where we stand right now with regards to pursuing this. China could come out of this with regards to a trade agreement with Canada from a position a position of power, although mostly just because it's a mammoth of an economy versus Canada's. No, exactly. And I, I mean, politically speaking, if Canada were to announce some sort of free trade arrangement or that formal talks are moving ahead with China at this point in time, I imagine that would have a, a pretty big impact on ongoing NAFTA discussions, I have to imagine. I'd have to imagine, yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, every new, every day is a new day in trade, it seems. So I'm sure there will be more to talk about next week. But we're going to move on with our show today. And first, we have a range of innovative disruptive technology that's emerged over the last while to provide financial services and systems that conduct transactions and aim for greater efficiency. In other words, fintech. And we're going to chat about that a little bit with our next guest. But you can join us September 13th for BIV's fintech panel where we'll be focusing on helping small and medium-sized businesses make informed decisions in this new landscape. For more information, head on over to BIV.com slash events. Our first guest today joins us each month to expand on his monthly letter from the president, which covers some of the most significant Canadian and global developments that stand to impact our investment institutions. Ian Russell is the president and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. His latest letter has a look at the discussions held at the International Capital Market Association's AGM held in May. Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Haley. My pleasure. I'm going to go back about a decade because that's where your letter starts. You have a look back (laughs) at the uh, 2008-2009 financial crash, which hard to believe it was 10 years ago. I know. I'm curious what lasting impact that has now had on financial institutions, on regulatory discussions, on our priorities overall. Well, it's had a, uh, a long-term impact, probably an impact that's lasted a lot longer than uh, than people had thought um, in, in at least two respects. One that I r- write about in this president's letter, which is um, the banking system really at large, with Canada and Australia being exceptions really to the rule where they came out of the crisis relatively unscathed, the U.S. banks and the European banks um, – uh, went through um, uh, a very, very difficult period. Uh, and we all know the stories in the U.S. with the uh, bankruptcies that ensued. And uh, similarly in the U.K. in particular. Um, and what has happened as a result of the legacy is that um, the U.S. May- banks made a remarkable recovery in that uh, 10 years we're talking about. Uh, the European banks sort of struggling um, and um, the, the other dimension to all of this is that uh, 
there's been a flurry of activity really over that ensuing 10 years by the regulators um, to try to uh, improve the uh, resiliency of the financial system, which obviously was uh, quite suspect uh, and vulnerable in 2008. So there's been a lot of work on the banking system in particular and on the capital markets uh, generally. A lot of that focused on uh, making the system safer but also improving uh, the environment, I think, uh, for investors in capital markets in addition to the banking system. Are there there risks, though, that if you look at what's going on down in the United States, say politically, that we could look at deregulation that could put us at risk once again of a similar situation unfolding? Well, that's a very excellent question. And I guess I would take the position that I would say not really, uh, Tyler. And the reason for that is the fact that um, the U.S. um, regulators went completely overboard um, after the financial crash in 08, which is to say that investors were absolutely shocked. The housing market fell apart. Um, uh, Long-established solutions, uh, institutions uh, went bust. Uh, and the um, the politicians and the regulators um, went through an enormous amount of reform, Dodd-Frank, uh, the Volcker Rule uh, in particular, but uh, uh, changing a lot of other legislation um, and regulation as well. And the result of that, and this is generally um, sort of an accepted opinion, I think, among Uh, most prominent um, uh, regulators and um, policymakers is the fact that the U.S. pendulum swung, the regulatory pendulum swung too far. There was just too much, uh, it was over-regulation. And Dodd-Frank would be a classic example of that. Uh, The uh, Volcker Rule would be another example of that, the prohibitions on proprietary uh, dealing. So what we've seen uh, coming out of the Trump administration in terms of um, financial reforms, you're right, there's been deregulation, but it has been um, uh, very careful. Um, and it's really aimed at putting the U.S. regulatory framework perhaps a little better aligned with uh, the framework that's in place in Europe and uh and in um, and in Canada, for that matter, so it's just brought it back into balance. So uh, um, that's the way I would answer that question. The U.S. system is still very, uh, very well uh, protected, uh, with a lot more stability uh, in the system. And part of it is uh, regulations, which uh, I mean, the Basel III rules, the tough rules that apply. Um, but in addition to that, um, we've seen, and this is what I talked about in my letter, um, very robust equity markets in the U.S. have enabled uh, financial institutions, the J.P. Morgan's, the uh, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, uh, Citibank, those institutions to raise a lot of equity capital and strengthen their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. You mentioned regulations in Europe, Ian, and they have a new framework in place that really pushes greater transparency and protections across asset classes. Can you talk a bit about the impact those regulations in that framework is expected to have on institutions? Yeah, um, sure. Um, the, um, 
I guess the positive measures on the um, transparency agenda. Transparency is always uh, a debate. This is transparency, putting more information in the public in terms of bond trading and the whole method to regulatory uh, framework that I uh, talked about is making the bond markets in Europe more transparent. But uh, there's a need to be careful there because a lot of the dealing is on bank balance sheets. Um, and if you uh, expose too much information, um, then market participants can see transactions on bank balance sheets, particularly exposures on bank balance sheets. If banks have, say, taken short positions in bonds or taken long positions, they are vulnerable and exposed. And so it's important to have the transparency, but uh, to be very careful about the extent of transparency so you don't um, expose these vulnerabilities on bank balance sheets. So I think in Europe what's happened, um, or my assessment, is that the the way they've managed the transparency agenda has been very, very effective uh, in uh, finding the, the, the balance. So there's enough transparency to benefit investors, but very careful not to expose. Um, uh, there's two things that they're careful of, or they calibrate carefully. One is the size of transaction. You don't make uh, it explicit what the size of the transaction is. And there's a bit of a delay in the uh, information that's provided to the market. So there's been a very careful approach and it's been calibrated around uh, how much liquidity there are in certain asset classes. So that's the good news. The bad news in Europe is that, you know, the Europe has talked a lot about um, banking union um, and talked a lot um, about their capital markets union, uh, which is to say that the banking system is very fragmented in Europe, uh, regulated by um, individual countries. Uh, Italy still regulates its own banking system. France regulates its own. Uh, we don't have a European system. Um, that is uh, bad for uh, the banks generally. I talked about that, uh, the European banks. And the second one is Europe has never had a vibrant capital markets, uh, a vibrant equity market. So the capital has all come from the banking system. And that makes uh, the Europe, European business overly dependent on banks. So if banks are weak, it's harder to get uh, competitively financed cap- finance capital. They don't have the robust um, uh, equity markets that you see, for example, in the U.S. or even in Canada. So for quite a long time, Ian, we would hear that fintechs as well as banks, the deal was that they would be partnering with each other and banks mm-hmm. were taking a bit of a wait and see approach to this. Just in the last month or so, we've noticed in Vancouver that major financial institutions are actually acquiring these fintechs now. I'm wondering what the outlook is from capital markets. Are, are they looking to embrace fintech the way that maybe major financial institutions are, are starting to at this moment? Yeah, well, I think uh, financial institutions have no no choice but to embrace um, the technology, um, the financial technology, uh, be it in the front office uh, where it's robo investing, um, for example, um, or in the back office where it's related to things like clearing or the payment system. And um, to see it in action, you just have to look at what's happened in China. 
um, where, um, you know, these large tech companies, the Alabamas and uh, the um, uh, the uh, Tencent is, is the other one that uh, are um, really tech companies that have moved aggressively into financial markets, uh, particularly the payment system, but into asset management, banking. Um, so uh, you, when you see that happen and how aggressively and dominant they become, you look elsewhere in the world and you say, wow, um, what, you know, what's the potential for that kind of happening um, in, let's say, North America or in Europe? I think um, it's going to move. It's going to move in the same kind of direction, but it's going to be a much more measured um, change. In other words, a change in terms of more and more technology will come on the scene, financial technology. Uh, there's no question. And more and more uh, will be offered. Uh, we'll see more and more new entrants coming into the market. I mean, Canada's already looking at its payment system and looking at, um, well, the Chinese model would be a case in point. What about uh, Google or uh, Apple? Um, Apple Pay, in a sense, is already in the payment system in one sense. Uh, will they be larger uh, participants in the payment system, the clearing system, and even in banking? And um, I think it's inevitable that they will play a, a, a bigger role. Um, so you'll see that happen, and you'll also see more and more technology come. But I think the um, restraint on, on it in North America and in Canada would be a case in point, is we have to be careful about ensuring the integrity of uh of the system. We have to ensure that uh, there are proper controls and protections uh, in the payment system. So, because again, if you don't have that integrity underpinning uh, banking or the payment system, um, you will have um, the risk of uh, uh, systemic problems in the market, a loss of confidence and the kind of thing we saw in 2008. So, I think it's inevitable we'll see uh, financial technology play a bigger role, but the regulators will be very, very cautious about how all of that happens. That's a good point. And a quick follow-up to that, do our existing regulations cover a lot of the transactions that maybe new fintechs are trying to facilitate, or is there maybe a bit of a gap and regulators are trying to catch up to some of these new developments? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think... Um, uh, regulators are trying to catch up. I think uh, we see it um, in terms of um, in the securities markets, blockchain would be a good example, where blockchain technology is a very efficient way to clear securities. Um, I think the regulations are a bit behind on that. We still have regulations that are designed for uh, the more conventional way of clearing uh, securities. Um, but the Canadian securities regulators are surprisingly, in some sense, very open to uh, change and to innovation. So, uh, and we've seen it in Australia as well, where the Australian Stock Exchange has adopted uh, blockchain or is adopting blockchain technology. And there's some projects going on in Canada. So, I think that will happen. The regulators obviously are going to have to change the rules to allow it to happen. And the other place we're seeing it is in Ottawa. I think uh, Ottawa is looking at uh, the banking system, the banking uh, banking system, and the payment system, saying, 
Well, we have to uh, be mindful of the need for a more competitive uh, system. We have to open it up. Again, you've got to find that balance between uh, imp- in, in encouraging competition, but also ensuring the integrity and protection of the system. So uh, the, the Ottawa is looking at amendments to uh, the regulations to uh, accommodate technology. And while that's happening, of course, on Bay Street, uh, be it in with the banks or or be it with uh, the investment dealers, uh, the uh, the technology um, or the amount of financial innovation and change is is almost mind blowing. I mean, there's just so much going on uh, in the financial. I've never seen in, a, in my full career, I've never seen as much uh, activity and um, and innovation and talk and change as there is right now. We're in the throes of enormous change in our uh, capital markets. Oh, exactly. And it comes with a learning curve for everyone, including journalists who have to try and decipher what's going yeah. on, which and is why we is appreciate having you. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, as always, Ian, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Haley and Tyler. It's uh, always a pleasure chatting with you. That's Ian Russell, President and CEO of the Investment Industry Association of Canada. And that's it for our show. Find past episodes on iTunes, Stitchers, and at BIV.com, where you can find the latest business news. Thank you all for listening.